Welcome to the Wedge Gallery Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Tyler Martinez. Today, we're speaking with Jermaine Barnes. Jermaine's research and design practice investigates the connection between architecture and identity. He is an assistant professor at the University of Miami and runs his own practice, Studio Barnes. In today's conversation, I speak with Jermaine about architecture licensure, his graduate thesis project, his exhibition at MoMA, and recent work. Uh, hey, Jermaine, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate your time, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think the last time we saw each other was a dinner, right? This was, I think, three months before the pandemic, um, after your lecture at Woodbury, uh, which doesn't seem that long ago. Um, hopefully, hopefully you've been doing well. I, I take it you haven't been traveling as much since then. No, it's been, um, I've been on lockdown. I've actually been one of the people who adhere to many of the guidelines. So I've... Uh, haven't been able to see my family in over a year because they're all in Chicago, whereas I'm professionally based in Miami. Um, so that part has been a bit difficult. But aside from that, uh, it's pretty sunny, so I go on walks for the most part. I try to, to uh, stay as busy as I can. But otherwise, it hasn't been extremely tough for me professionally, but uh, just from a mental health standpoint, um, it gets a bit boring around here. Yeah, I can I can imagine. So are you are you setting up a routine with the family to have, you know, dinner or drinks or something once a week? So usually what well I call I FaceTime um my mother and father probably like every other week, maybe, just to see how they're doing. They've been um working from home since the start of COVID. That's actually the last time I saw my mother. Um she was in town the week of March last year right before the city lockdown so she was here visiting me in miami and the last two days of her visit is when many of the outbreaks started to happen they slowly began to shut down all over the country and that was sort of like our our uh see you later until the, until the next time i see her yeah i mean i think everyone's dealing with their own issues right now and it's i mean it's just unbelievable that everything's kind of stopped um i have some colleagues in chicago too and i think it's I mean, I guess everywhere is kind of bad, but uh, hopefully your family's okay. And I guess you're you're alone in in Miami, is what you're saying. Yep, yep, yep. I've uh I haven't lived near my family since 2009. So this is 12 years uh, on the go from when I was in graduate school at Woodbury all the way to now. Do you think that's an, uh, influenced your your practice? Like, I guess you know, more focus maybe. Getting more work done? Uh, it, hasn't, it hasn't made it more focused, but it certainly influenced the practice because it allowed me to understand how much my family means to me, how much my culture means to me, how much my environment meant to me. And so a lot of the work that I've been creating within the last two or three years has literally been a representation of those stories um, from my childhood with my family. So some of the porch research that I've been doing, some of the Black kitchen research I've been doing, um, some of the public space and uh, urban fabric stuff. These are literally all born out of experiences with my older sisters and brother and my parents. So let's let's go back then uh, to the beginning. Did you did you know early on in your career that you wanted to be an architect, or is that something that kind of slowly progressed over time? Uh, I'm one of those weird kids who've known their entire life that they wanted to be an architect. Um, the earliest that my mother can recall me mentioning the profession is around six or seven years old. 
when my aunt asked what I wanted to be when I grew up and I said an architect. And fortunately, that's been able to happen now at 35. So it's 29 years and it hasn't changed. And you're, you're a licensed architect now in, in Miami? I have three more tests to go. How is, then, that, how is that going? Is that painful? Um, well, it's awful. It's the worst. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the worst because when you're actually getting work and, and you're doing things, it's hard to find a balance between work, study, um, and your own personal time. Yeah. Because a lot of, like, I graduated from Woodbury in 2012. I worked for a year and a half in LA before moving to Miami. I worked in a non-traditional setting for the first six years of me living here in Miami. Non-traditional meaning not in the capital A architecture firm, but for a local community development corporation where I was the entire design department there because they were a nonprofit. Um, so I'm getting all this architecture experience and I'm getting all these hours and stuff, but there's certain things like HVAC details and things that I'm not getting but I am understanding the business aspect, uh, project management, um, all the things that when it was time to start taking my test, I knocked out those practice and project management exams easy. Like those were a breeze because that's what I've been working through. But then the last three exams, which are more detailed um, and construction document focused, some of that stuff I had, don't have much experience with, even though I've built quite a few things in this time just generally because we just outsource it to MEP people. And instead, it's like, I don't have to know that. My, my engineer will do it. But then you get to these exams and it's like, oh my God, like, why are you guys asking all these ridiculous questions? This is not how real practice works. I would never specify this. Like this is something I would have somebody else do so that I don't get sued. And so a lot of it is that back and forth, that internal struggle of understanding like this is just a formal test, but it's not actually how people practice. Right. Um, but sometimes I, I battle with, so yeah. But I mean, you're, you're an educator, and so you know the, the kind of um, tension between the discipline and the practice of, of architecture. And I think there's been some recent conversations even about licensure and how um, kind of, not ridiculous, but just how hard it is to really become a licensed architect. And now that you're, you're doing all this, do you think it's, I mean, do you think it's necessary? Do you think we should be re revisiting that? I hate this process. I hate it. Like, it got to a point where I failed one test two times in a row. Um, this is before they changed the 5.0. This is on 4.0 when they gave us the vignette where you can get 100% of the multiple choice questions correct. And if you do poorly on the vignette, you fail the exam. It's like the dumbest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And this, this process is a massive barrier for people of color, like massive barrier. One, because these exams aren't cheap. Each one's like 250 bucks. If you fail it, you got to take it again. So there's another 250 bucks. Like there's, there's no reciprocity for payment. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like it should be one time. Like, I, if I pay one time, I can take this test as many times as I need until I pass it. I shouldn't have to pay every single time I take this exam. Like, that's stupid. That's just for money. And then when you add to the fact that if you want to take a break, there's a rolling clock. So it's like, why are you putting a timeline, a time limit on me to where if I pass an exam one year and I don't finish the rest, I got to retake that test even though I passed it. Like, you don't know what's going on in my life. I might have a death in the family. I might try to start my own family. I just might not have the time to continue taking the rest of these exams because that's a luxury. But then I lose my passes before. It's just there's so many stupid things that, uh, mm -hmm. that, that go into it um, that I just find just annoying. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, maybe these types of conversations will help fuel the fire to, to change it. I mean, it is ridiculously expensive. Um, it's like $1,500. And then there's the study material. 
the, you know, the, the research stuff, the books, the podcasts. Um, and it just adds up more and more. And unless you have the money, uh, you know, in the, the time, it's, it's so hard to become a licensed architect. Being a licensed architect is something that I've always had as a personal goal uh, uh, prior to understanding what real practice was. I never met an architect when I was younger. Um, I'm from Chicago. I live down the street from Frank Lloyd Wright's homes. I did a Frank Lloyd Wright project on the Guggenheim when I was in the seventh grade. I went through all the art schools and summer art classes and stuff. So I really was on this trajectory, but I never really understand what licensure meant. Um, I just assumed once I finished school, I can start designing and building things. Like I thought it was that simple. And then once I learned all of the behind the scenes process, I was like, oh, this is just a massive money grab. Like a lot of this isn't even necessary. Mm-hmm. And then when you become a faculty member and you're trying to teach future students, like, please just trust me, don't quit this process. It's hard to convince them to continue through 12, 13 years to get a license when in reality, you really don't need one. Like as long as you are charismatic enough to get projects, and if you have five or six streams of income with respect to the built environment, you have enough equity to where you could hire licensed architects or you can make partnerships um, with, uh, with offices that have licensed professionals. And then you still get all the acclaim of the design while not having to worry about the, the sort of lawsuit of being the architect of record. For me, I want to be one of those black architects that think it's to pay it forward to some young black designer when I'm old. So that's the reason why I'm doing it. Like, I don't need it. I'm already designing and building stuff now, but it's not for me. And I mean, sure, I'm sure the perception of architecture and also being an architect has changed since the beginning of your uh, education to now, you know, teaching architecture. So you, you went to undergrad for architecture um, and then you, you ended up going to Woodbury for graduate school. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that like? The, just the kind of, I guess, educational pro- process for you as a, as a student. Massively different. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Polar opposites in means of education. Uh, my undergrad school is practice-based. Uh, which essentially means that in your four years with your BS, um, every single semester you'll have a drawing, a studio, and a systems course. Like you don't have a choice every single semester. So as a result, you really understand the tectonics of how buildings get put together. Uh, You don't learn how to design really well. You don't understand visualization very well. You don't understand how to talk or the theory or the criticality that comes with space and the built environment or the occupation of space, but you do learn how to put a building together. So when it was time for me to pick a graduate school, I thought, how can I find somewhere that can actually teach me how to design well, uh, that can teach me how to be critical, it can teach me how to think about architecture, because I felt like those were the things that I was missing. Because um, all of my history courses in undergrad were just your survey courses. Here's Brunelleschi, um, here's the Prairie School, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't until I got to Woodbury where I started to learn to think through architecture, to think through space, to understand uh, history, theory, um, begin to impose my own personal anecdotes within that history and theory, and then begin to speculate outside of a box, because that was really all I knew at the time. And so when you put those two different approaches together, I think you can get a very well-rounded um, individual. And I think looking at, like, let's say, the the climax of the, the your time at Woodbury, your thesis was probably it seems pretty important for your, your body of work, but also your, your career. So the symbiotic territories, your graduate thesis. So that, that project I think was, was a, a, 
extremely relevant project to your to your body of work. I'm wondering too now that you're an educator, do you do you see the graduate thesis in architecture uh, being important now in 2021? Do you think that's a, still an important conversation? Because it seems like for you in your career, it was something that really kind of kickstarted everything. Yeah, um, it's funny because that entire project happened by accident. <laughs> like it, it wasn't, I didn't set out to make this like landmark project that, cre that created my career trajectory. The idea was just to do some cool stuff with hip hop and architecture because that's where I'm from. Like that's what I know. And it was through some conversations with some thesis advisors that really pissed me off and told me that I couldn't do stuff around race and architecture, that it really was just me giving my finger to the professor, like, all right, I'm going to prove you wrong. And somehow I was able to find my voice through that project to where it propelled me to where I am now. But on the other side, as, a, as an academic and having taught thesis three of the last four years, I've learned that it's not for everyone. Some people don't care about the criticalness that comes with thinking and thinking through, uh, through the built environment. Some people just want to be production. And I think that's okay. I don't think everybody has to be the super theoretical individual that, that contributes something to capital and architecture. Um, I think you can be the person who just does construction documents or project manages and you go home at night. Like, I think that's okay. So for me, it's kind of hard to reconcile how much sweat equity and emotional perseverance it took me to finish my thesis and then see students who don't care as much about their own. So that's sort of the crossroads I find myself at. It's like, it's one hand I understand it's not important to everybody, on the other hand, it's like it was so important to me. I wonder why it's not important to everybody. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, it's totally. Weird. Yeah, yeah, and you're, I mean, there's a spectrum of of um, ideologies across the discipline of architecture. You know, ranging from practice to to theory. Um, and I think whatever you get out of it is what you get out of it for you as an individual. But I, I am curious though because I, I thought it was a, a, a extremely relevant thesis, and I'm wondering if you you index it or if you reuse. Uh, your body of work from that for new projects? Um, so Ingalil was, uh, and I love Ingalil, she was at my thesis review and she says something to me that I will never forget, which in the moment I was like, what is this lady talking about? But she said to me, this is your autobiography. She said, this is your personal story. And the whole time I'm working on the, uh, the thesis, I'm thinking just give a finger to these professors like that's all this is i'm not thinking that this is telling my own my own story until i was two or three years away from the project and i looked back and i was like holy hell this really is like my personal story this is my autobiography using architecture as the medium and so i always find myself going back to that project because it's me and everything that i do sort of stems from my own personal stories and so um, some of the projects I'm working on now, which, which deal with uh, the porch and the occupation of space and, and this sort of um, collision of white hegemony and black occupation is literally born out of that thesis. Literally born out of that thesis. So it's, like, it's, it's funny to see how this stuff uh, still finds its way back into my work, regardless of how much I try to hide it. So, I mean, it's interesting that you're saying you kind of did the project as a, a middle finger, you know, as a kind of um, uh, opposite of what people were telling you. Why do you think that is the case? Is it, I mean, is it a formal thing or is it like the history of architecture and how architects tend to think in the past? People were telling you that you couldn't 
pursue this interest around race and identity in architecture? I think it's because we're in a field that's not dominated by people who look like me. And so uh, when you have an architecture or you have a, a thought line or you have a pedagogy that centers a white perspective and that white perspective is always privileged and they don't have to worry about the same marginalization as an indigenous person, as a woman, as a queer person, or as a black person, they're less likely to accept your alternative version of the built environment because they've never experienced it. It's like, this isn't racist because it hasn't happened to me. Or this isn't sexist because it hasn't happened to me. It's like, it doesn't have to happen to you in order for it to be legitimate. Mm -hmm. And so my project really was born out of the pre-thesis of me just trying to find instances where rap artists talked about the built environment. That's literally all I was trying to do. I was like, let me go, okay, Jay-Z talks about the projects, Kanye talks about his house, blah, 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 these things exist. And so I literally just put on the wall, just not thinking like, all right, here's some examples because I have to make this architectural. And when I put them on the wall, I got so many critiques like, well, that's not architecture. These things don't have anything to do with each other. We have no responsibility to the social aspect of the world. We just create buildings in space. And so when I heard it, I was like, you're all idiots. Like, all of you are idiots. Do you all not realize that everything we do has an impact? And just because it doesn't affect you, doesn't mean it doesn't affect other people. And so at that point, I just switched my entire thing. Like, I'm going to prove to you all that this really does have a connection. And it's unfortunate that it took the murder of George Floyd and riots for architecture to realize, oh, what these students were telling us was actually true. And we just were ignoring them because we have massive amounts of biases, whether explicit or implicit. And we're finally starting to see the reconciliation of all the stories that we've been telling them for decades that nobody thought was legitimate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the murder of George Floyd really shook up the whole world. Um, and I, and especially I think in architecture as well, is it, I mean, is it frustrating or is it also exciting at the same time that um, there's more of a conversation around this or does it feel like, how do you feel about this current moment within the history of architecture? Um, I'm, I'm pretty privileged. So I tend to take my own personal uh, thoughts out of it because there's so many nuances to this stuff that it's sort of hard to, be, to make a, a hard line on any of it. Um, I think it's good that this attention is finally being put to the forefront because it's been hidden for so long. Um, I'm still skeptical because it's only less than a year since it's happened. Um, and everybody has their sort of a lecture series filled of black voices and people of color and women. Um, I'm interested to see three or four years from now if it's still the same or if we revert back to uh, what we've known before. I'm interested to see how many new voices appear within academia. I'm excited to see how many universities increase their black faculty from zero to three or four or their TAs from one to 10 or 11. Um, if these things are happening, then then I'll think, okay, this is, this is exciting. This is a new wave. We're about to get some really innovative stuff. Um, if it goes back to the old way, then, then I think that all of this was just pomp and circumstance and it was putting lipstick on a pig. And I hope that's not the case. I think there's some serious change happening, which uh, is needed. I hope and, so. Yeah. I really hope so. If it is, I would be so happy because I love this profession so much. Like it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do, ever. And, and to see it become more inclusive, uh, it would just, it would make my day. And so you're participating in an exhibition at MoMA. This was planned prior to the pan pandemic, wasn't it? 
Yeah, man, this thing is two years in the coming. We got the first email about this exhibition uh, in 2019. <laughs> it was like May of 2019. Wait, yeah, May of 2019, we got the email that we were selected for uh, the next current issue, which is Blackness in America. So MoMA does this architecture series uh, biannually called Currents. One year was around water, another year is around um, housing. And in 2019, the idea was it would be around race and blackness in the US. And so they convened 10 artists, designers, architects, et cetera, uh, to be a part of this. And I was fortunate enough to be chosen as one of the 10. And the original opening was supposed to be October of 2020. But then when the COVID outbreak happened and the, all of the cities were on fire, things got pushed back. So a lot of people might think that this was a, um, this was born out of the riots or, or the, or the acknowledgement of, of um, racial disparities, when in reality, this was already cooked up a year ahead of time. Has it, has it changed at all since the summer? Yeah, it's, it's been scaled back some, just because, you know, with social distancing, you can't do the full scope um, of what you originally attempt. Um, but the show actually opens on the 27th. They started install on Monday, which is extremely exciting. Um, I had originally proposed some very ambitious installations. Like I told them I wanted to design an entire kitchen and sort of show them what a black kitchen could be. And everybody was super excited. But in the moment COVID happened, they're like, well, you can't do that anymore because that takes up too much space and people will be too close and it will require guards to be there all the time. And if you have somebody standing there, there's just too many opportunities for exposure. So it got chopped down to a, a small portion of the kitchen instead. Yeah, and I, I remember your your lecture you had at Woodbury. I had a chance to see, you know, you present your body of work, and it really does seem to focus on the domestic uh, elements, and also I think the the kind of um, experience or the user kind of uh, interaction between the let's say elements, the porch, the chair. You're saying the kitchen, which I think is really really quite fascinating. Um, is that is that the majority of the conversation you're having in this MoMA exhibition, or is it some other research as well? Yeah, it's a, it's primarily that. Um, when they approached us, typically with the current issue, they give this idea and they're asking architects to propose a solution, right? So it's, here's housing, how do we fix housing, et cetera. Architects are always seen as problem solvers. Uh, but fortunately, the advisory committee that picked the 10 of us um, wanted to, to dismantle that relationship and essentially said, Here's a city, here's some spaces, here's some words. What can you make? And so my city was Miami. My spaces were water, kitchen, and porch. And my words were liberation, joy, delight, um, and I think resistance. And so from that, it became, how do I tell the multiplicities that's Blackness here in Miami? Because you can look like me, but be Haitian, Dominican, Bahamian, uh, Dominican, et cetera, right? Not just African-American and that we do have shared experiences, but that we are different and we need to celebrate those differences and utilizing the porch and the kitchen and water as mediums to tell the stories of, of those similarities and those differences. So with my piece, you'll see 12 collages based off these different ethnicities. You'll see some maps that show uh, Black Miami and how we were restricted from accessing the beach unless we had racial identification cards. Um, you'll see some old Miami Herald articles, which also talk about the discrimination of black people in space in Miami. And then you'll see this massive spice wall, uh, which is all custom designed, which sort of shows like if, 
if a black person designed the kitchen for black people, what would it look like? And how fantastical could it be? And it sort of takes inspiration from the old Jet Magazine uh, Black Kitchen that was done, um, I think, in the 1970s, uh, which was acquired a couple years ago. Very interesting. So this, you said this is the 27th is when this is opening. Yeah, uh, 25 days from now. No, 15 days from now. 15 days from now. Congratulations, man. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. Like, I'm sure just the idea of exhibiting at MoMA is so, there's so much excitement, I think, with that um, from a career standpoint yeah. as well. It's the first ever all-Black exhibition in MoMA architecture history. To be a part of it is pretty awesome. And, and to be able to represent Woodbury, the school that sort of gave me my second chance, also makes me extremely happy uh, because everybody else in the exhibition are like, I went to Princeton or I went to MIT and I get to walk in there and probably say, yeah, I went to Woodbury, now what? Uh, yeah, I know I know that you have a good relationship with Woodbury, it seems like. Um, and I think it's always a benefit when you graduate, you can look back and see where you came from, um, which is always exciting. I, want, I wanted to quickly talk about um, some other work that I've seen okay. recently. So the, the, the porch is the tree, uh, is the watering hole exhibition. Yep. You, you design these fantastic chairs, like Thank absolutely you. gorgeous chairs. And I'm wondering if you could give us some insight on uh, not only the conceptual process behind it, but also the formal, uh, uh, let's say, um, uh, technique that you were using to generate these fantastic chairs. Sure. Um, that was another <laughs> happy accident. I have this very, I have this very fun uh, habit of failing into success. Um, I was asked to do the exhibition design um, for that show. And part of the exhibition design was to do seating. And the curator came to me and said, we're trying to do something that talks about the porch. Um, can you create uh, something that references stairs, et cetera? And again, this is pre-COVID. And so I'm like, I would love the opportunity. Here's my concept. Uh, my concept is an unfolded shotgun home, which was the housing typology for this historic neighborhood of Sistrunk. Um, I want to pay homage to that. I want all of the podiums to be wooden instead of the typical white. Uh, I want the floors to be wooden and everything else. And then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, we couldn't do one general seating area because you needed the six feet of, of distance. So it became chairs because that could ensure that they were spaced far apart. And so once we pivoted to, uh, to the chairs, I was like, all right, how can we still show this connection to the porch and to this historic neighborhood and the Bahamians that settled it? And from there, we came up with this idea of the Bahamian porch chair. We abstracted that from its wood to metal. Um, the backs of the seat are inspired by uh, hair picks, which you might see like the Afro pick and things like that. Um, they also draw inspiration from Bahamian Junkanoo bands, uh, which is something I learned about once I moved here in 2013. This is huge, fantastic carnival-like event where everybody's wearing super, super elegant and colorful wardrobes and headdresses uh, that really celebrates hair and blackness. And I was like, oh, this is fire. Like, how can I turn this into, into chairs and architecture? Um, and so we did that. And then the actual seats uh, are woven patterns, which mimic braids and hair locks, because unfortunately, Black people's hair is policed all the time. Uh, if you have dreadlocks, it's seen as unprofessional. Uh, people like to touch Black people's hair without their permission all the time. And so I was trying to find a way to bring all of these things uh, to the forefront, and they sort of converge 
into these chairs that I love uh, quite a lot. And there are six um, that exist and the show is up until May 31st. And I've already gotten a couple calls from museums about acquiring um, some of them, uh, which I think is pretty dope. So I, I guess from a, a processy standpoint, um, I guess what you're saying is that maybe the conceptual or the historical notion of the work always leads the formal analysis, or is there a technique or a, a process that you have maybe in the computer or maybe finding objects that help generate, I guess, specificity in, in the work or maybe in particular to those chairs? Because the, I mean, the, um, the colors, the textures, like, like the way the warp and the weft are kind of interacting tectonically. There's, there's so mm -hmm. many details. I'm just wondering if you give us some insight on, on your process from maybe start to finish. Sure. Um, I actually learned at Woodbury to write a lot before I work. Um, and so that's where a lot of the sort of the theoretical exploration comes in. It's like, what am I trying to achieve? What story am I trying to tell? Um, how do I want this to play out? And then once I've sort of narrowed that down to the, to the themes that I want to explore, then it becomes, let me sketch, let me make models, let me jump into the computer and see uh, what we can start to formalize. And a lot of it is just trial by error. So we, we make a lot of models um, in my studio and just to see if we like it, if we don't like it. So there were three or four prototype chairs before the final ones. And it was just like, all right, maybe we should paint them. I know the paint looks bad. Uh, maybe we should stain them, don't like the stain. Uh, maybe we should try to burn them and have like this wooden effect and we didn't like that either. And so um, a lot of those details were, were just born out of, out of um, multiple attempts until we found something that we were, we were happy with. Uh, and I think just for my practice specifically, I work best through iteration. I rarely figured out on the first try. Um, I might have the idea on the first try, but the, the formal version of it doesn't exist until 10, 15, 20 versions of it has already been explored. Yeah, that's great. I mean, iteration is so important because I mean, if you, if you just settle on the first thing you do, it's probably not what it wants to be yeah. uh, to some extent. And so you said you're doing this also at your, in your studios at, uh, in Miami, right? University of Miami. Um, yeah. And so is there like a, a certain conversation that's happening in Miami? Like what's the architecture scene in Miami right now? I actually have more conversations with artists than architects. Um, the only architects that I have conversations with are my colleagues at the university. Um, that's, that's really it. There isn't a robust network of architects like say in Los Angeles or New York or something like that, um, which I actually kind of miss uh, about those cities. There were always events, there were always conversations. Um, it was fun to just see all the work being produced. Miami isn't at the same level, however, it's art field is. And so I found myself visiting many galleries or hanging out with a bunch of artists and sort of talking with them and talking through processes, which sometimes they look at me and say, you're so rigid. Architects are so rigid. Um, but it still allows me sort of some intellectual discourse into, into understanding what I'm trying to do, because a lot of times my work and the work of our studio really is anthropological, right? It's, it's, it's less about physical environments and more about the people who inhabit the space. And that goes back to what I mentioned before about me drawing from my own personal experiences um, and understanding that, that the end user is just as critical and important to the conversation as the client and as the architect. Yeah, it seems like a lot of other creative disciplines like graphic designers or painters or artists, they make fun of architects because we're, all the like, time. You, like you said, we're too rigid. <laughs> yeah, all the time. 
um, maybe hanging out with them would make us less less rigid to some extent. Well, I learned. I went on my first. I went on my first um, artist retreat uh, in December. We drove up to this um, place called Art Center in New Smyrna Beach, Florida, which is maybe three hours north of uh, of Miami. So, hopped in a rental car, drove up, and I'm there with twelve other artists, and it's just me, right? And I'm the only architect trained person, and I'm just watching them just make things randomly. I'm like, "What problem are you trying to solve? What's the prompt that was given to you? What's your program?" And they're like, "What the hell are you talking about?" And I'm like, you, aren't you guys responding to something? They're like, no, we're just making things. And so it was like in that moment, I realized almost all of our practice is, is a response to something else. It's rarely a freedom of just, I want to make things. And the things I'm going to make may not have a purpose. It's like everything we do has to be based off of a prompt or a program or a competition. Um, and so I'm trying to learn the freedom that artists have to just produce things. And that's, I mean, it's so exciting to hear. I guess the last thing I wanted to to talk to you about is maybe what you're currently working on or maybe yeah. get us some insight on on what the next, uh, you know, six to 12 months is for you. Sure. Uh, we got a couple of things in the, in the, in the pot. Uh, one thing is I'm guest editing the next issue of Moss Context, which is an architectural journal based out of Chicago. And our topic is vigilantism and architecture, sort of what are the, the rules around spatial occupation, the key fob Kellys and the barbecue Bettys and like what empowers an individual to take reign over space and police space of other individuals. So that's sort of my next writing um, job. That issue debuts in April. And then built wise, there's a couple of community projects I'm working through with my research lab. One of those is in Delray Beach, Florida. We're doing a massive community uh, playground, paint day, they were in the midst of coordinating. And then there's also um, an exhibition that's opening in, in Chicago with the School of the Art Institute that some of the portrait research is going to show. And it opens the second week of March. And then there's another neighborhood um, also in Broward County where they're trying to create a landmark museum. And we've been tasked with doing some of the visioning and some of the community outreach to sort of spatialize what that could be. Uh, and that debuts in October. So we got quite, quite, a few, uh, quite a few things going at the moment. So you're staying really, really busy, which is good, right? Yeah, and, I'm not nothing else to do. I can't. And, yeah, and hopefully, hopefully when this yeah, pandemic is over, you can, you can go back to Chicago to see the family. Yeah, that'd be great because I bought a house and I haven't been able to go see it. Oh, really? Are you, gonna, are you redoing it or is this just kind of uh, buy and live kind of thing? Completely redo it. It's a, it's a historic graystone. It's an amazing building. And I still haven't been able to see it with my own two eyes because I haven't been able to get to Chicago. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, listen, man, I, I really appreciate um, you uh, joining us today and, and talking about you and your work. Um, and, you know, we're really uh, excited for, for, for you in the next couple months and your, your career. And we appreciate your voice and leadership. Uh, so I just want to say thank you for, for being here and talking with us. Thank you for having me. Um, I owe a lot to Woodbury. So um, this, this is easy. All right, man. Well, uh, have a good one. And we'll talk again in the future. Thanks so much. All right, buddy. Take care. Have a good weekend. Thanks for joining us for today's Wedge Gallery podcast. The Wedge Gallery is located on the campus of Woodbury University School of Architecture in Los Angeles, California. 
You can find out more about the Wedge Gallery at wedgegallery.woodbury.edu.